Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host today, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week we're going to be talking about herbalism and foraging and sustainable foraging of herbalism and forage. Just, that's what we're going to be talking about with uh, with Janet Kent, who you all have heard from before on another episode from a long time ago about herbalism. And I think you all get a lot out of this episode. But first, this podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show on the network. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. From Embers, anarchist perspectives from the territory currently occupied by the Canadian state. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or on the Channel Zero Network. And we're back. Okay, so Janet, if you could introduce yourself with your name, which I guess I already said, and your pronouns and kind of what you do for a living, as mm-hmm. which would help people understand why they should listen to you about this topic. I am Janet Kent. My pronouns are she, her. I run a school of botanical medicine uh, that's located mm-hmm. in uh, about an hour outside of Asheville in Southern Appalachia and Mm -hmm. in so-called Western North Carolina. And I'm also a clinical herbalist. And I also live in a hardwood co-forest. And so I'm surrounded by wild plants. And specifically, like this region of Southern Appalachia has a long history of settler wild crafting as a kind of hustle. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of, but when most pharmaceuticals came out of plants back in the day, this was a huge nexus of harvesting and distributing and um, people extracted a lot of plants from the wild as a means of survival and sold them to the pharmaceutical companies. So that is partially because this is a really ecologically rich place. But I say all that just to say that I'm surrounded by plants that have medicinal value Mm-hmm. even in like the larger market outside of the home forager or home apothecary. Um, so it's something that like we have to really think about here and are forced to, even though we're surrounded by the medicine, the ethics of that are something that I think about pretty regularly. So I might be better situated than some <laughs> to consider <laughs> that. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, and that's why I wanted to have you on to to talk today, right? Because I feel like this is this question that, is coming up more and more as foraging becomes a little bit more mainstream or, well, I guess actually to start with, we were talking earlier and you talked about how there's sort of a foraging craze that's coming from the pandemic. I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that, like what's happening right now in, in foraging. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that while I do think there was a much more of a burst during the pandemic when people were, um, getting outside more public spaces and parks became more visited once they were open again. And you saw just a lot more people out. I don't know like how much time you spend in public spaces, but there was a huge increase in, Mm -hmm. in people in national parks and, and for national forest, state forest, all of those kinds of places. And even just in um, city parks and such. And I think that 
there has been a lot of social media content that's being created around foraging. And it is like a way that people can get excited about gathering their own food. It can be a really nice like gateway to like relationship with plants because people start to learn to identify plants and learn what is food. And I definitely think that there's no small part of this that is also connected to people wanting to spend less money on food. I mean, we have applicants for our schools sometimes even say, you know, like I want to learn more about plants that are useful for food and for medicine because I need to spend less money. So there's like an economic incentive here as well. And I should probably spend some time on that in a bit. But also I would just say that over the last, I don't know, it's probably been more than a decade, there has just been a surge in interest in wild plants, including for food and for medicine. Yeah. And that's either really good or really bad, depending on who you ask. Is that what's is that what's happening right now? Yeah, I would say that there can be a pretty binary viewpoint on mm-hmm. this. And it's interesting. I mean, something that you probably see with a lot of people that you interview or with different uh, communities that you might be in, um, as there is a rise in awareness of just the colonial project that we're all part of still. Mm-hmm. And so that this is still occupied territory. There are indigenous people here whose land settlers are occupying. Mm-hmm. There is a certain level of guilt that can come with that awareness. Right. If you are someone who is not indigenous to Turtle Island. And what the way that I see that play out sometimes, not always, is mm-hmm. uh, with people sometimes seeing kind of stark black and white ideas around what is good and what is not good Mm -hmm. in relationship. And we see people who hear like we shouldn't wildcraft or they memorize like this all wildcrafting, which is the word that herbalists and people who are into plant medicine will use to describe harvesting herbs for medicine specifically. I don't, I don't usually hear wildcrafting used to refer to food. Yeah. But so wildcrafting, can be seen as strictly extractive and people just taking from the wild. Because as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a long history of plants being taken en masse from the forests Mm -hmm. to serve the pharmaceutical industry. And even now there are certain plants that are threatened and endangered because they are used even in European markets at such a... Uh, black cohosh specifically is an herb that is seen as being helpful for some menopausal states. And uh, it's used in, so in Europe, it's more licensed, legal to be a doctor who uses or plant medicine. Okay. And so you can prescribe herbs there. Okay. It's more regulated as well, but definitely tons of black cohosh are sent abroad every year. And from what I I met someone who works is sort of like from a root digging family, like a traditional Appalachian root digging family. But she said she'd been in warehouses where there was just like piles of rotting roots of black cohosh, you know, because people, Uh yeah, the work of, as in is usually the case, like the, the peace workers, the people who are gathering are paid shit. Mm -hmm. And then the stuff is piled up. It's not stored very well. Some fraction of it will make it into medicine. And so there is very much a problem with extraction in mass 
yeah. of wild plants, especially when the root is what's being harvested because that kills the plant, right? Yeah. Ginseng's like one that I feel like I hear about it, too. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. Ginseng would be a great example. And interestingly, I mean, you may even live in ginseng country. I do for sure. But that's something that's, um, you know, has been historically as settlers came into these mountains have shipped abroad because by the time the Revolutionary War happened here, already there was a dearth of ginseng in China because so much had been wild harvested and they hadn't really put in cultivation yet. Okay. And so as soon as the global market, people within the global market figured out that there was a similar ginseng here, they mm-hmm. started shipping it abroad and actually ginseng sales help, helped pay for the Revolutionary War. Oh God. Uh huh. Which is just so wild. So there is very much a history of extraction of plants. Yeah. For the extractive project that is the Revolutionary War. Absolutely. On a huge scale. Yeah. So when we are thinking about our own personal use or serving our communities or, or, you know, a lot of people will try to make herbal products as a side hustle, then we do need to confront our personal relationship with that legacy. Yeah. That's obviously really important. However, the amount of time and energy people spend policing other people's foraging and wildcrafting is a lot, as you may imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, social media is particularly good at uh, right. getting us to level our weapons at each other. Yeah, right. So we see a lot of that, and I feel like the the climate has not been very nuanced for this conversation uh, because what's true, and this is probably part of what you're wanting to get at with this episode, is that there's a really big difference between digging up a 15-year-old root of a plant in the forest that took that long to get that big and taking the whole root and killing it Mm -hmm. than there is actually harvesting weeds or harvesting invasive plants or plants that are are here in abundance. And actually, you can harvest some kinds of plants in a way that is supportive to the plant community that they live in because they're opportunistic or taking too much space Mm -hmm. up. And so... I think when we have a black and white rubric around this in which like all wild crafting is extractive, we're also forgetting that there is a way for humans to be in relationship with plant communities in a way that fosters diversity and richness in the ecology and can be a form of wild tending. And that is how Turtle Island was maintained right. by all of the indigenous folks who were living in so many different plant communities around the continent before Europeans showed up and disrupted yeah. that. Okay. So what are some of the, I, I like examples. It, it makes it very sure. more concrete sure. in my head. Like what are some of the examples of plants that are, you're, you're helping that plant community right. by foraging right. or by, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. Um, and there's, I'll share with you a book. There's a whole book on invasive plant medicines. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm going to say invasive here. I know that that's a controversial word to some people, but what I mean is plants that are not, that came after 1492 right. <laughs> to this right. place and, and are opportunistic and can take over spaces right. um, and take up a lot of space. So that's what I mean when I'm saying that. And we can say non-native or invasive or just opportunistic, but I'm going to say weedy and abundant plants here. Sure. Plantain would be a weedy and abundant plant. And mm-hmm. mugwort can be quite opportunistic and take over in some places. Mimosa tree, the really beautiful pink firecracker looking tree that grows to the Southeast pretty abundantly is uh, pretty opportunistic 
and can take over spaces for sure. Um, you know, and sometimes native plants are also pretty weedy as well. Mm-hmm. They're Yarrow is a plant that comes from Europe that there are some native varieties too, but they tend to not be as opportunistic. A lot of garden plants that have escaped, like catnip or whorehound, you might find in other places. Sometimes lemon balm goes feral in some places as well. So those would be some examples. But a lot of uh, trees that you see, well, it's hard to say, uh, trees that were planted for landscaping and then kind of move out, like um, Tree of Heaven is an example. There's a lot of different trees that got brought in at various points that have spread out and can really outcompete other trees. Yeah. This is really, it's interesting to me for a lot of reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of notoriously bad for someone who like often lives off grid or like, you know, I live mostly alone on a bunch of acres in a mountain or whatever in Appalachia. And I'm like kind of notoriously bad at actually knowing the plants around me and how to engage with them besides being like, I swear one year I'm going to be here in the fall and eat the acorns. You know, it's been my plan for however many years I've done every step of acorn harvesting at various points and never actually finished it and eaten them. But so it's just, it's kind of interesting to me because as I walk around, you know, the place that I live, I've I've become more and more familiar with some of these plants and it's interesting to think about them in different ways. And then also think about like whether or not I have a desire or like a, a role in sort of shaping Mm -hmm. what plants grow around me. Yeah. And like, I don't like even know the answer to that yet. Like, I mean, what I sort of in my head, I'm like, I believe both the pines and the oaks near me are fairly you know native to this area or whatever but i'm like but i like the oaks more and so i'm like is it bad to start like kind of cutting back the pines and like trying to propagate more of the oaks like maybe the tree level is a higher level of thinking about because they take a lot longer but is that something that like people should be doing in the kinds of should be is a weird question but Mm -hmm. could think about doing in the places that they forage or like thinking about how what the current plant environment community is and what it could be shifted towards? Or is that like, do you stay out of it? This is not a question. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, I think I, I can pick the through line in there, which mm-hmm. is that what would a good relationship look like when foraging? And to me, you know, I wasn't taught this way at all. I definitely came up in herbalism when this was not part of our conversation, but I think in general, wild tending is the way to go where you actually have a perennial relationship with the plants that you live around or the plants that you visit or the places that you like to harvest so that you can pay Mm -hmm. attention to when they're healthy and when they need support, see which plants are taking up some more space. You know, I mean, depending on what pines you're around, you know, uh, those would have at one time been controlled partially through fire management practices because they burn more than oaks. Right. So, you know, that's like, I mean, not that we're trying to like go back to some pristine era because that's not possible. There's just sort of moving forward from where we're at. But, but it is true that in a lot of places where there were mixed forests in that way, there would some, there would be periodic fire for support mm-hmm. hunting, um, which would have taken out the pine. I mean, I think that personally, preferential treatment <laughs> of different plant communities and landscapes feels pretty intuitive. And also if you look back 
through history, but also if you just look at different cultures that are living in a sort of attending stewardship relationship with the plants around them, there is usually preferential management practice, which you, mm-hmm. that's kind of like a boring way to say it. But yes, like favoring the plants you would like to see do better and favoring plants often that are useful to humans yeah. and, and wildlife. You know, when before the American chestnuts went through their blight, they're not extinct, there are still a few left, but when, before the chestnut blight took out such a large amount of the chestnut trees on the eastern coast, that was the dominant tree. And yes, they were taller and larger than most of the trees in the forest, but there was a level of preference for those because they made tons of food every year. And so humans and birds and and anim- other animals that, like chestnuts, propagated the chestnuts by moving mm-hmm. them around. Even a squirrel burying a bunch of chestnuts is going to make more chestnuts come up, you know? Right. So I think that that is a pretty natural way to relate to the plants around you, which is to, to favor some over mm-hmm. others, you know? And when you start to pay attention to, like, who's just kind of taken over, which can be plants that are actually from here too, then, Mm -hmm. and you want ecosystems tend to benefit from number of connections and number of members. And so you want to see richness in both of those numbers. You want to see more members and you want to see more connections. So when you have any one member dominating, you're having less of both. Okay. And I think if we can think of tending towards you know, the word diversity is almost destroyed at this point for usefulness. However, I could say that ecologically, what I mean is like, yes, strength in numbers and connections. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know. I've been really enjoying just like, you know, I have a dog now, so I have to walk around a lot and actually like mm-hmm. pay more attention because he's always like finding all of the things and making me pay attention to it. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that. There's a cat, there's cactuses where oh, I live and it confuses really? the hell out of me. Yeah. I live in West Virginia. Um, Are they prickly pears? I don't know. They're small. Okay. They're like low to the ground. They're, um, they're like big round green lobes kind of that uh-huh. like hang out on yeah. the ground. And I, there's not a lot of them, but it confuses the hell out of me. I have no idea if yeah. they're native to this area or not. I don't understand. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you that. Uh, well, now everyone knows I have cactuses. Sure. I mean, the dogs, taking you, dogs are wonderful for getting us out of the house and out into the world, you know? And then you start to pay attention to who's around, who else is around. You know, the dog bleeds you to the others, right? Yeah, totally. It's how I know about all the turtles on the property is my dog finds them and then hangs out with them and just sort of stares at them. And then I are watch... Are they box turtles? Yeah, they're some kind of... They're not... Yeah, I think they're box turtles. They're not, a, they're not doing so well. I looked them up. There's not a lot of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I live somewhere where there's not a lot of roads, um, so they don't die as much. Right. Um, I love I like box turtles. I, yeah. It's, I actually wanted to bring up um, a different, similar mm-hmm. creature when I was thinking about this topic earlier, which is that um, I think that, like, while I can be like, it's all, you know, we need to tend relationship, we need to be stewarding land, all of these things, um, it is worth noting that generally – wildlife and plant communities are, are under pressure when people get hungry and yeah, uh-huh. 
you know, I was in Florida near some of the beautiful springs down there a few years ago. And I've also seen these in parts of the Gulf South, but they're these really cool tortoises called gopher tortoises. Have you ever met one of those? No. They're kind of big. Um, I'm, I'm just realizing I'm Mm -hmm. using my hands and you're not gonna be able to see my hands on the, on the podcast. However, (laughs) they're a pretty big (laughs) turtle tortoise and they're so cool. They, one of the things they do is they make these burrows. That's why they're called gopher tortoises, but, um, they help a lot of different creatures survive hurricane flooding and other like vast flooding because other animals will hang out in their little burrows with them. Uh So they're like, they're like wombats or something. They're like a, a helper species that makes habitat for other animals. But um, I was reading about them when I was down there and in the Great Depression, the locals down on the Gulf South and in Florida called them Hoover chickens because uh-huh. they were naming them after the president, President Hoover, who they were blaming for the Great Depression and just got because they were eating so many tortoises to survive. Okay. And the tortoise population just like dropped out during that time and they're slowly getting back, but they have a hard time too, like like the box turtles that you live near. Um, and so when I read that, I just, it made me really, it made me think about foraging, honestly, and how much I had seen yeah. this like uptick in it with the economic dip and made me just understand that the level to which we need to be emphasizing what's abundant and what, you know, a tortoise, tortoises are not abundant. <laughs> they were not abundant even back then, probably. Um, But like which species are there a lot of, which species does harvesting actually help the larger plant community, but also with individual species, there's plants where if you harvest in a specific way that helps propagate them, then you can help increase their numbers as well. And that's going to differ from plant to plant. But I think that what I would like to see with people getting more and more excited about foraging and wild harvesting of herbs in general is that actual consciousness about what it is to help help their numbers grow right. so that it's not much of an extractive relationship. Yeah. No, I I remember reading one of the things that like really stuck with me. I read a long time ago was about how during the Great Depression, like squirrels and deer were hunted to near extinction in various places. Wow. And like um that takes yeah, a lot and- for squirrels. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, these are the things when I think of abundant animals, right? I think of deer and squirrels, at least where I live. And, and so that, that realization that you can, that we actually have an impact, you know, like the, Mm -hmm. the small amounts of destructive things we do really can add up. Um, Obviously, we're living through a, you know, climate level of all of that coming. But, no, that's that's. Uh, it makes me sad about the the tortoises, but okay. So so, what are some examples then of these? I know I'm just keeping like give me more examples because I like yeah, the stories true. of it. But like, what are some of the <laughs> yeah. plants that you're like helping? I could imagine, for example, like I mean, obviously chestnuts are very complicated right now, but you know, uh, harvesting chestnuts, of course, doesn't necessarily ne- negatively impact the tree. Um, and earlier, you were talking about basically being like root. Um, roots are like much more complicated to extract. Are there like ways of extracting roots that are less bad? Would you mostly say anyone listening to this, unless you know better, just don't mess with roots and work on some other stuff? Uh, yeah, you know, and actually, 
you're reminding me that when I have been seeing a lot of like more like virally popular foragers, they don't tend to emphasize roots, which I feel grateful for. And yeah, I would say that in general, unless you have a perennial relationship with a plant community, then just staying away from roots is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, But with a lot of plants, there are ways to harvest where you're not actually greatly impacting the plant. Let me think of some examples of that. I mean, I almost don't want to bring up ramps because they are so over-harvested in some places. Those are wild leeks for people who might not know. But um, but what is true is that if instead of harvesting the bulb, the white bulb, it's kind of like an oniony, garlicky thing. And mm-hmm. if you can just take a leaf and harvest leaves from a big patch instead of digging them up, that's going to make a huge difference. Right. Now, when you see restaurants start to offer foragers money for ramps, at least in my neighborhood, I start to see much more like big holes dug where they're just digging up clumps of them at a time and then just taking them wholesale out um, to sell, you know? And so I would say like, yeah, the above ground parts are always going to want to, are always going to be more, sustainable to harvest Mm -hmm. but also if you're taking flowers from a plant for example i'm trying to think of like a good example of this i love peach flower medicine i love peach flower for um grief and for hot agitated states and there are feral peach flower trees and and there's old orchards that are no longer sprayed and when you're harvesting Peach flowers, you can actually support the tree because they need to not let all of those flowers go ripe and become flat fruit because it's too much Ah, for a fruit. So if you selectively just pick a couple blooms off the end clusters, that's actually going to help the plant overall. Yeah. You know, or I'm thinking of, um, I wanted to give another example of something in a more urban setting, but linden trees are plants. There are some linden trees that are native to this continent they're called basswood trees that's the name here but there's european lindens that are planted ornamentally there's a bunch of them downtown Asheville. but that's like where there'll be a huge tree covered with thousands of blossoms and the flowers are the medicine there too and they're always covered with bees bees love them but if you see something like that where you're like it's impossible to even imagine how many there are then you can take some flowers and you're not going to hurt that tree you know, I guess if we all did that, that would be something we're thinking about. And that's why having a perennial relationship where you see the shifts through the years, see who's getting hit. Um, and if some if an area is being overharvested, you can tell because you've been paying attention, that would be something to do. But yeah, I would say that there are a lot of like flowering trees where you can get the flowers or you could even prune some of the branches and have some of what you need. But also with herby plants, the above ground plant, you can kind of see the parts, the aerial parts is what we call them Mm -hmm. and notice how much is gone. And usually you can tell if someone else has been there. Right. So that would be what I would say. But again, if you, if you're sticking to really weedy abundant plants, then this is going to just be less of an issue. Like goldenrod, for example, is a gorgeous endemic plant or a plant Mm -hmm. that grows on a lot of parts of turtle Island, which is a really excellent allergy remedy not so good for food, but they're incredibly weedy. You'll see a giant field of them all over the place, you know? And so 
if you just stuck to plants that were pretty weedy and abundant like that, even if you got as much as you're going to need for the year, it would be very little in a dent of even one plant stand. Yeah. Okay. So I took a bunch of notes where you're you're saying that because there's so many pieces of that that I want to pick apart. And one of them is this, I've been running across this thing more and I I suspect you've probably run across it more because you run more in these circles, but this idea that like the concept of nature is sort of a colonial construct. This idea that like, when we create the idea of nature, we're talking about something that is distinct from humans and how that's like kind of this thing that like gets us off the hook. Like when we imagine like humans as only bad, it like lets us off the hook for being bad as compared to like, it seems like you could talk about either you show up and you dig up all the roots of these, you know, ginseng or whatever that's been there forever. And you just like mess everything up versus they're like, other plants that do very well for humans as part of the ecosystem interacting with them in the same way that they do very well for having bees in the ecosystem or birds in the ecosystem or whatever. Yes. Um, I don't know. It's really interesting to me. And I'm wondering if that's like a conversation that. uh, Yeah, I think that's been a helpful conversation, I think, for people to have around um, not just having black and white thinking around it, which is what you're getting mm -hmm. at, I think, which is that if we're actually in relationship then we're going to be able to care for the plants instead Mm -hmm. of just taking or just ignoring. I mean, there's definitely, unfortunately, a pretty big segment of people who are into environmental biology who do have a very hands-off, don't interfere, just Mm -hmm. leave it, you know, kind of perspective. Um, And I think, yeah, definitely, which is, I mean, ridiculous given that, there are no plants left on the planet who are not being impacted by, by human activity. Yeah. Yeah, You know, so you actually going in and maybe, so part of this is like a kind of an aside from what we're talking about, but there's this concept called assisted migration, which when you're like, these plants hate how hot it's getting right here, we should move them further North. Oh, interesting. You know? And so there's all these people who are like, no, 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 we can't interfere. We might ruin everything. You know, it's like time traveling or something like we might actually like do one thing wrong and everything will be, it'll be a clusterfuck and the whole ecosystem will collapse because we move this tree up there. Um, And who knows who else on there. But then there's a lot of people who there's actually like secret groups who meet to help with assisted migration and to propagate. Uh It's really wild. Anyway, I say all this just to say that, like, I'm not on a never interfere <laughs> wavelength because I think the interference is happening already. I mean, it's not my life's work to move trees around to places where they might make it. Right. But that is something that, you know, even the research we have about this extinction crisis is just that the loss is huge. Yeah. And are there places where we could support life becoming, like, diversifying and strengthening plant communities? as other trees are coming out. Like right now where I live, I don't know if this is how you're, where it is where you're at or not, but the ash trees are all dying. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, the emerald. the ash borer or whatever? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's really happening hardcore where we live. So yes, it is true that there will be other trees that are going to come into those canopy gaps to live. Uh, but we are seeing these forests change dramatically right now. Yeah. And, it's just, it's going to be interesting. Like there are people who, because the hemlocks are dying out as well from the woolly adelgid along the rivers and streams and some places around here, there are people who are like, well, what are the plants that we could put in here intentionally that would help shade, that would support the trout? 
and right. support the life in here, you know. And so those kinds of ecosystem design frameworks make people really uncomfortable because of the level of damage that has happened through the inadvertent introduction of certain species. Right. Well, it's like if we fucked something up so bad, and we is a weird word to use in this context, but sure, you know, I mean, I'm a settler here and I, you know, reap the rewards of that in terms of like the foods available to me at the store, whatever, tons of shit. Um, But okay, we fucked this thing up so bad. I can understand people's like, oh no, we fucked it up. We just shouldn't do anything. But, But that's a little bit like pushing someone over and then they're like, help me up. And you're like, no, last time I interacted with you, it went really bad. So I'm just going to walk away. No, I mean, like, exactly. Because I'm like, we're, we're going to just watch the f- destruction happen that yeah. is in the wake of this economic system and not actually do anything to change it because we might hurt something. I mean, right. it is, it's absurd when you actually lay it out that way. Yeah. We set the house on fire and now we don't want to run in and help people because yeah, we just make everything right. worse. So we should avoid everything. Um, I mean, it's because I, I also think that it makes sense for people to not be like wildly cavalier about deciding that, you know, they should just get to re-engineer the way that ecosystems sure. work. I like, oh, that's such an interesting tension um, that I don't have any answers for, but... Well, I mean, there is a lot of tension with it. I mean, I think a lot of times when I see scientists who are taking the really hard line, no interference stance, they are people who don't study indigenous land management right, and don't understand the level to which humans normally play in ecosystem right. design and movement and, and construction. And so I think that in general, what would be the wisest thing to do for anyone would be, you know, what if you're not indigenous to this place, what are the indigenous folks around you saying about what is wild tending and what does uh, support and stewardship of this land look like right now? Right. Yeah, though, that makes sense. What is it, what is involved in, you know, I'm not indigenous and what would be involved in trying to find that out where I'm at? Do I look for people who are like kind of talking about that publicly? I assume the answer is not just like, go find my friends who are indigenous and be like you there. Right. Well, it depends. Um, I mean, I don't, yeah, it really depends where, where people live. I mean, there are mm -hmm. in many places around the continent, I'm learning more and more about this. There are actually are like cultural centers where you can talk to folks and be like, who Mm -hmm. are, who are working on land management stuff right then, you know, within whatever uh, tribal sovereignty they have in that situation. Um, Here, this is unceded Cherokee land, Salegi land, but but, you know, we are in contact with folks who are doing wild tending and talking about, you know, and the, a lot of the, the schools there in the Cherokee uh, where the actual reservation is there, they are actually trying to introduce more and more wild foods, you mm-hmm. know. And so through talking to, to folks who are part of that project, we've been able to be like, okay, like what, a pe- what, what would be helpful for you to have more of? Also, right. one thing that I would say in most places, um, there's some tension between what indigenous groups, what land they have access to. Um, and uh-huh. in, in the Cherokee area, I mean, a specific part that they still have control over right now. You know, I know a grandmother who was given a $500 citation for picking herbs in the national forest for Uh her daughter's, for her daughter's memorial. 
you know, and, and at the same time, like they had to have the Cherokee folks had to push through to try to get a permit to be able to pick this plant called Sochan, which is a wild perennial green that people eat in the spring, especially. And mm-hmm. so um, through communicating around with those folks, like I've been able to like learn like what plants are being uh, prioritized with them, but also like supporting them, you know, like they had to petition the, the state for us to be like, can we pick herbs on this land? Right. Yeah. And so actually like as annoying as it is supporting that, getting the word out, making sure that there's a shit ton of signatures. <laughs> yeah. Letters yeah. Totally. Sent, sent to the state forest which are just like that this is even a question is absurd right yeah Um, absolutely especially because there are plenty of settler foragers just going out and foraging with no sort of um impact i mean they're having an impact but they don't have to deal with any consequences so yeah yeah, i guess what i would say is like figuring out who's just around you you know and usually and that the thing is, is I don't know how the regions are all over the country, but definitely in the West and Southwest and in some parts of the Southeast too, it's not that hard to find cultural centers or people who are working on land and food sovereignty where they're at. And so I would just say, I don't know about specifically where you are. And that's an interesting question, but there are cultural centers in a lot of places that will have people working on food, wild food yeah, support. And often just like land tending in medicine ways. And I know in the West, like we've had a couple students who actually are doing fire management, intentional fire trainings with, with different indigenous tribes out there. And so they're actually learning to do the fire management practices from the people yeah. on the ground who had that tradition. Um, and I think that's a fascinating way to learn too, and to be like, what is, because that can be somewhat dangerous as you're learning, right? Yeah, totally. Um, uh-huh. And so like there, that feels like a pretty big service to me to be like, could you help do that kind of work somewhere? Um, And you would learn as you went, what plants are being prioritized, which plants need support, what plants are problems, you know, Mm -hmm. um, through, through that work as well. Okay. I like that. I like that. That's a, I feel like usually that kind of question the like, well, what can you do? It doesn't have as good of a concrete answer as that. I, I really appreciate that. One of the things that you were talking about earlier, you're talking about, you know, the ramps that are being sold to the the restaurants and stuff, right? And I I was just thinking about how it seems like when you're talking about foraging and when you're talking about wildcrafting, obviously scale matters, but mm-hmm. also when money gets involved, it seems like it gets real Absolutely. messy. Um, yeah. And yeah. like I wonder how people like like is there any ethical wild foods that introduce into market environments or is it like pretty much if you're going to be doing foraging you should be feeding yourself and your family and maybe your community but not doing it like market scale yeah that's tough i mean i don't know there's definitely some folks around here who do like a wild food food share even and there's people who do wild food um there's like a wild food booth at the farmer's market because of this that's how it is around here Uh, There's just more people with that interest who are willing to pay the big bucks for foraged items. And so I can imagine. Which is ironic, but anyway. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) If you could see what's on the table at these spots, it's pretty wild. But um, anyway, but so that feels like a scale. It's not that I'm like, who's actually, like, how much are they actually selling at the farmer's market every week? Like, you know, I don't know. It doesn't seem like huge. But once we think about like actually scaling up to like, say, like 
provide for several stores or something like that. And it does get kind of out of hand. And I know that um, in some places, like mushroom foraging has gotten pretty wild um, mm-hmm. in a way that can be <laughs> destructive. But again, that depends on this on the mushroom. I mean, some mushrooms, it actually helps them to have a lot of people in there just sort of disturbing the ground and like spreading the spores around while some mushrooms, when it's not actually the fruiting body like chaga or something, it can be somewhat damaging to harvest a lot of it. It really just depends. I think that if say like you were your product was uh, something that was a really a plant that's causing a lot of trouble mm-hmm. in a whole area, like around here, there's, there are people who are working really madly on kudzu root production and using kudzu root for, for starch and using oh, kudzu root. Make, yeah. Kudzu root to make paper. They're doing, they have this kudzu camp every year and they dig a ton of kudzu root and are just trying to figure out how many ways they could work with kudzu root. Mm-hmm. If that what was, was what was entering the market, then that would be fine because, as you know, having lived in the southeast, yeah. there's no shortage of kudzu yeah. for people to work with. So if we were actually making a market marketable item out of uh, opportunistic and aggressive plant, then that would be not a bad idea, actually. I mean, yeah. who knows? I'm sure it could get weird. <laughs> Yeah, right, because you could eventually enter the nonprofit trap. Like, I'm not anti-nonprofits, but at some level, every nonprofit has a financial incentive to continue its problem existing. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, right, exactly, yeah. So you'd be like, oh, God, we've run out of kudzu. What are we going to do? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, that's a good problem for us to run into, right? Yeah, totally. And then, like, I was thinking about one of the other places I've been with the most over like intense invasive things. I think of like the um, Himalayan blackberries in the Pacific Northwest that are just like take over every field. And, and in some ways I'm like, Oh yeah, great. You know, blackberries. And then I'm like, Oh, I think if you're just picking the berries, you're actually just propagating. Um, Totally. We we, we would need to instead like have the commercial product heart of blackberry root or something, you know, it would need to be the root probably. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just so wild. I mean, if you've ever removed a lot of that stuff, it's so intense. Yeah, I used to do landscaping, and that was Oof. most of what we did is remove uh, blackberry, <laughs> blackberry yeah. you know, root balls yeah. or whatever. It's been a long time. I think um, also, since you brought the Northwest up again, I just wanted to say that like part of what I would want to just share here, since we're giving different mm-hmm. specific examples, is that really it just matters like place to place, even weedy and abundant plant place plants in some places are, can be a problem if you're harvesting them other places like here Hmm. Mm -hmm. stinging nettle, stinging nettle is like pretty aggressive. It's abundant. There's a lot of places where you can harvest it a huge amount and make barely a dent in the stinging nettle patch. But I know that there are places in the Northwest where there's actually been a problem and there are certain butterflies who exclusively lay their eggs have caterpillars that feed on nettles, which I don't remember what kind of butterfly this is. And so those butterflies have become endangered because of the foraging craze around Portland specifically, because it's a very small area that they inhabit. So while I could be like, nettle's great, just take the top third of the plant. It's a huge patch. It won't matter. Like if that, that doesn't translate to everywhere across the continent. Right. So part of what we have to do, if we're going to be foraging much for food or medicine is to actually know what are the conditions for the plant where we live Mm -hmm. and not just have 
I can't give a list of what's safe to harvest everywhere. That's why invasives can feel a little safer because generally if you know something invasive, then you already know then there's, that it would be helpful to right. take some of them out. Well, But other plants, not so much, you know. That's actually one of the things that's really interesting. I think there's a lot of topics that we talk about on this show where you kind of can't learn from this show. You kind of can't learn from yeah. just like... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I follow a forager on Instagram. I therefore know all this stuff. I mean, like, I'm sure you can right. learn a ton of stuff that way. I'm not trying to disparage that or my own show, but it sounds like local knowledge will always be necessary yes. in a lot of different uh, fields that are the kinds of fields that I, that we like, we as a species need to like learn or we as a culture or whatever, like need to learn in order to survive what's coming anyway, are a lot of these skills around yeah. actually interacting with the yeah. places we're at in terms of you know, whether it's like making microclimates that um, the temperature doesn't change as much or being able to continue to eat food on a regular basis mm-hmm. or whatever, as we as we move more local, a lot of the knowledge has to move local. That's really interesting to me. Yeah. Huh. I That's okay. definitely true. And I would also say that it's something that like you have to kind of pay attention to over time mm-hmm. because we can have local knowledge as of now, but the climate is shifting so quickly and a lot of people I know are in zones that have changed already in the past five years. Yeah. Um, and so we also need to be paying attention to like who amongst the plants is impacted by this shift to warmer and erratic weather yeah. and who is thriving with that, you know? And so it's also just paying attention to those changes. And, and that's something that it really just helps to be an observer over time or to speak to people who've been around for quite a while. And within that, I think it's probably important for us to think of the concept of the shifting baseline from ecology, which the shifting baseline means that like, okay, so my example would be like when my dad was a kid, my dad's 87. When my dad was a kid, there were so many more kinds of birds. There were so many more animals of all kinds all around, like wild animals. There were a lot more specific kinds of like big birds that eat big insects, uh, like whippoorwills. There were more Mm -hmm. Bob Whites. There were all these, there were more birds that have now, you know, I think the estimation is that there's maybe, some people say 30%, some say 50% less birds than there were 50 years ago. That is so depressing. Um, It's incredibly depressing. But when I was growing up, I would not know that if I hadn't read that or hadn't talked to my dad about how many birds there were or how many fish there were or whatever, because... I would think like, this is how much, how much of X there is, you know? And so when you grow up with less, you think less is normal. And we have generation after generation growing up with less and less and less. We have lost an incredible amount of biomass globally. And we don't always know that. So what I can say, like locally living somewhere where there's been like, I don't even know how many herb schools over the past two decades, there've been so many herb schools and so many foraging schools and places where people and it just draws and attracts people who are interested in doing that kind of stuff. But also if you're not already, you probably will be if you stay here for long enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so <laughs> anyway, the, the impact on wild plant communities where plant walks happen often, where herb schools take their students often has been very notable. Okay. And it's because, you know, we have like, there's just like, year after year of alumni, of cohorts of students, of different people who have moved here, who have uh, gone to different classes, and, gone. and uh-huh. those people continue to visit those spots, sometimes even if teachers have asked them not to, yeah. and they bring their friends, 
you know, and there's this whole exponentially more people harvesting plants of certain kinds. There's certain ones that are specifically more exciting than others, probably. Um, And so just in seeing what's happened since I moved here with some of the more accessible spots um, with specific plant communities, I'm thinking of Pedicularis specifically right now, which is uh, wood betony is another name for that herb. That's a plant that's very cool and easy to identify, but also has like sort of a relaxing, muscle relaxing feel to it. So people mm-hmm. really like it because <laughs> mm-hmm. it Fair has like a, little, a little bit like body relax feel. Yeah, yeah, And so um, those patches have just been decimated. And when I see that, I'm like, you know, a lot of herb schools, at least in what I was taught traditionally, was like people would be like, go in and you can have like, you can take one out of every 10 plants, you know, and that would be like the maximum that we were taught at a certain point, 10%. And, but if everybody comes and takes 10%, what does that even mean? Right. You know? So that is something that I've seen here specifically is like a cumulative effect of overharvest over time. And, and it's increased not just with the people in the field I'm in, but just with an increase in learning the wild plants and learning what they do because people want to take care of their own health or they want to feed themselves. You know, like, I mean, it's not coming from the worst place. It's just that when we're not in relationship and don't know the baseline, of what that patch yeah. looked like 15 years ago, uh-huh. then we don't know that we're in a decimated area or we're with plants that are under stress. That's something that you know from yearly visitation. Okay. And so it seems like then the answer, I hate saying the answer because I'm sure it's more complicated than anything I could say after that. But like, is this thing that you're talking about, about being in relationship with these plant communities rather than a yes. quick maxim about like, oh, go visit and just it's totally chill to take this stuff versus like knowing what's actually happening there and how things are changing. That makes sense. And then as you're saying with like a few exceptions where you're like, look, it's fine to take plantain, fuck it or whatever. Um, (laughs) Right. And okay. Um, Yeah, it it ties into this thing that I, I keep thinking back on is like this concept of like the wild feels infinite. You know, like, well, of course I can't affect the number of, I mean, even you can even look at this like in a negative sense, right? It's like, oh, I can't affect the number of ticks in my yard, but you actually can, (laughs) right? Right. But the number of ticks in my yard, my yard in particular feels infinite. How could there, how could I possibly have an impact on the number of ticks? And there are ways that I could impact that number of ticks. And like, so like if I had guinea hens or whatever, and they ate a bunch of ticks, you could actually create a notable difference, even though it seems like you're digging from this infinite pool of ticks. This is a very gross metaphor. Um, (laughs) And and so that makes sense that, yeah, there are these things that feel abundant and as long as you take 10%, but you're not thinking about how everyone does it. God, that's, I mean, the whole, the whole baseline shift thing. I like nothing is more depressing to me than thinking about the lack of biodiversity as compared to like a hundred years ago, even like it's kind of wild. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, um, <laughs> which leads me to the sort of conclusion of like, I think I have a difference in opinion than a lot of my friends and a lot of my community. Like it, I have more of this, like, great, we all need to start growing food inside. <laughs> like right. um, this very like opposite method of, of solving it or rather specifically, because I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, we'll all go forage. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, is this like, ah, well, nature will provide for us. And it's kind of like, well, nature did provide for us. And then we are 
culture or settler culture, like fucked that up real bad. Um, but I, I like this thing that you're talking about, about like one of the main ways to solve that on a small scale, at least is to, to grow into community with mm-hmm. the, the place that you're um, harvesting yeah. from to not be extractive. I think that there has to be kind of a mix too. I mean, I agree with you. Like I encourage people to grow their own medicine and to grow their own food as much as they can. But also I can say that like, as a, I'm a clinician, like, you know, I have a clinical practice with herbs and once you actually see the volume of plant material it takes to keep even a few people on a formula or on a tea, it's really wild. Like we, Mm. if I was not using some grown plants with also some weedy plants that I can just harvest, like, I don't know what I would do. And that's just me. Like if we were all doing what I'm doing, um, then the amount of plant material would be pretty enormous. I mean, I think about how, you know, in China, it's, amazing they have a still pretty intact herbal medicine tradition that's part of their medical system i mean it got Mm -hmm. homogenized after mao for sure and changed um although there's still people who practice pre-maoist chinese medicine um but they but they have an enormous amount of land given to monoculture of growing herbs for that industry enormous amount of land and so you know, when I have folks be like, well, we should just grow our own plants. I'm like, well, when we're actually, if you were actually talking about the scale of supporting a lot of people's health, that is a lot of land. And, and for feeding, it's going to be even more because the caloric intake we would all require is more than that, that we need with herbs. Right. So how much land are we talking, you know? Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things you brought up at the beginning that you said you wanted to return to, and we're, we're coming near the end, you were talking about how like more and more you're seeing maybe students uh, coming to your school because they're interested in herbalism and they're interested in foraging and wildcrafting out of economic necessity, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, I, I think about, yeah, you're talking about like you have your wildcrafted table at the farmer's market where everything is like wildly expensive, um, no pun intended. And you know, versus like kind of the whole point of foraging is that it's free, right? Right. Um, and I'm wondering if you want to talk more about that, about like, because I do think that there is, even if I'm like, obviously there's a million problems with foraging, it does seem like it still could have a way to be useful to help people on an economic level as like food prices go through the roof and wages yeah. stagnate or disappear and all that. Mm-hmm. I do, I do think it has a place, um, and I will say that, like, you know, just for the record, in case my students are listening to that, there's always a fair number of people who come in, like, staunchly anti-wildcrafting as well. Um, so there's definitely a, a pretty good mix, but, I, but I've been noticing more and more every year there are more people that are like, I think this is a survival skill yeah. with the economic downturn that's happening, which is what you're referring to. And so I do think that wild foods that are abundant and weedy can be a really helpful supplement to other food for sure i think that actually trying to live off of it is challenging that's something people will learn but Mm -hmm. you know it is true that there's some things we get with wild foods that we do not get from the domesticated food that we eat normally and i should just point out that i think that unless people can afford to eat organic foods especially if it's organic food with restorative agricultural practices which is not a lot of organic food We're usually eating food if it comes from the grocery store and in some cases, even the farmer's market that is coming from extremely depleted soil. 
right? Because the cap- the pressures of capitalism of the market require people just to like not ever let the land be fallow. They just have to continue to to pump the land and extract that food from it in ways, even though they're growing the food. And so most of the food that we eat is pretty nutrient deficient compared to what it would be in a more restorative agricultural system. Now, wild food, if it's not in a place that's very polluted, that's a whole other topic that we should probably mention, is going to be growing out of a place that's not just having like a cycling of harvest over and over again. And so they tend to be more nutrient dense. So if you could pick nettles in a place that doesn't have a lot of toxins in the soil, it's going to, they're going to be nettles that actually have a lot more mineral content than the greens you get at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. The same is true for dandelion greens. So while you might not be able to really like bulk up your diet with a ton of calories from the wild, although you could, it just honestly takes a lot of time and energy that not everyone has. Mm-hmm. Um, you will, even by supplementing a little bit with dandelion greens or other wild greens, you are going to actually get more of a nutritional impact. You'll get more minerals. You get this bitter flavor that's been mostly bred out in the domesticated greens and lettuces. They're not bitter anymore. Bitterness actually has a purpose which is that it helps the liver function, it helps with digestion. So I do think that if people supplemented their diets with some wild food, it would be beneficial in more than just those calories and in more than just the money saved because we are eating from such a depleted food system. So this is all to say that as our budgets are being impacted (laughs) by the way the level of inflation and how much food costs which is just going to get worse is what it looks like. Um, it's also just true that that we're, we're buying food that doesn't have as much nutrition as it should, you know? And so you get, you're getting more than just like that handful of greens in your salad. You're getting actually like pretty nutrient dense yeah. nutritional food. That makes sense to me. I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I basically like lived off of my prepper stash supplemented by wild greens for like mm-hmm. a month or so, which I wouldn't like immediately yeah. recommend to anyone as like fun right. and joyous. But I was really, really grateful. Like none of my calories came from the wild greens, but the sense yes. that I'm actually like taking care of my body came from the wild greens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So. And that does okay. change things, you know? I mean, I think that's what I would say is I, I'm not sure how much it'll like reduce cost hugely at this point to be adding in a lot of other food, um, but that improvement in your health is going to be noticeable. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, com- we're coming up on an hour. I'm wondering if there's anything mm-hmm. in particular that we missed that uh, you wish we had talked about or you know, like. Oh. oh, I do have. Yeah, I do have one thing to talk about. So this may also make sense to you having lived around here at some points. Um, and it's that um, I, I was going to recommend that people read this essay by Robin Wall Kimmerer that's called The Honorable Harvest. And I can send you a link to that because there's PDFs of that online. Okay, um, but we'll she meant, I was, yeah, I, re- I was reviewing it today and she reminded me of something. Um, and it's that, so for, for a while, this is getting to be less the case. But for a while within um, different herb circles and foraging circles that I was adjacent to, there was a 
sort of a nod towards respectful relationship with with the plants you might be harvesting. And and she's Robin Walkimer says in her piece, like, you know, always ask permission from the plant. But there's something that I would see like pretty commonly in settler foragers and herbalists, which would be like just like a really quick like, is this okay to the plant? And then they're like, they said yes. And then they would just go ahead and harvest very quickly. Uh-huh. You know, and like just like I swear, like immediate, like plants they'd never hung out with before, like this happened in front of me. Like, I mean, you know, and um and so I had always been like kind of turned off by the exchange. Well, it wasn't really an exchange, but like by that whatever gesture, gesture towards pretending to have communication, which it doesn't mean there's not communication, but um, there was this really awesome way that Robin Walkimmer talked about it, where she's just like, you have to use both parts of your brain for that conversation. You're not just using the talking and listening. You have to also use the part of your brain that's assessing the circumstances, assessing the health of the plant, yeah, uh-huh. the attention over time. It's not just about intuition and communication with the plant world. It's also actually about empirical understanding and paying attention, you know? And so to me, and what I've seen in my life is that like, I'm like, I sometimes know it's not even appropriate to ask. I'm just like, this stand is not doing okay. I am not going to harvest plants here right now, you know? Um, And so the idea that all that we need is like a really brief exchange of like, is this cool? Cool. Got it. You know, and move (laughs) on. Like that's Uh still very extractive, but it makes you feel like you did something. I mean, there's a really obvious comparison here to like the way that consent culture and sex is like not handled incredibly well where people are like whatever i asked versus like right, right, right. yes i should try and figure out how everyone actually feels yeah yes yeah okay. right yeah so just to say that like it's more than asking like asking and listening listening means actually listening over time it's not an instant gratification uh-huh. listen you know okay. yeah that's my <laughs> that's my last note which, which would just be like to actually learn to listen and pay attention and observe and that unlearning extractive tendencies and unlearning the entitlement that we all live and breathe in settler colonial capitalism is a lot of work and it requires patience and time. But also I will say that if you see someone else behaving in a way that you're not that into, you know, understanding that probably yelling at them is not going to, make them change their mind or behavior. Very <laughs> so also to have patience with other people who are on different learning edges here with this, you know? Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, where can people, do you want people to find yeah, you? Sure. Like, what, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah, yes, I have. Um, so I have a blog that's called radical vitalism, uh, with my partner, Dave, and our school is Terra Silva School, which we run with Jen Stovall. Uh, I can put that stuff in the sh- I've sent it to you to put in the show notes. Um, and then we also have a podcast called The Book on Fire. And um, I th- we're about to start our third season, and we're going to actually talk about the dawn of everything. So that oh, shit. relates. I love that book. Right. The- yeah, so good. So good. So it relates to kind of some of what we're talking about, at least. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. And I'm sure I will have you on again at some point. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
Well, first of all, if you enjoyed hearing from Janet, I highly recommend that you check out the earlier episode with uh, Janet and Dave about herbalism and herbalism for emergency medical needs and all of that. They have a lot to say. Um, And if you enjoyed this episode and you enjoy this podcast in general, uh, please consider supporting us by telling people about the podcast and telling the internet about the podcast and telling algorithms to about the podcast by rating and reviewing and subscribing and all of that stuff that has a, a larger impact than one might expect, much like killing ticks in your yard. You can also support us financially. This podcast pays its uh, audio editor and the transcriptionist And we're very proud to be able to do that work. And we are supported in that work by the people who support Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness on Patreon. The publisher that that publishes us, that's what makes it a publisher, is called Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. We have another podcast called Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness that you can check out. It comes out every month and has different uh, fiction and memoir and poetry and essays and all kinds of fun stuff that comes out once a month. And if you support us on Patreon, you'll get a zine in the mail every month. Well, if you support us at $10 or more on Patreon, get a zine in the mail every month. And in particular, I would like to thank Allie and Paparuna and Milica, Boise Mutual Aid, Theo, Hunter, Sean, SJ, Paige, Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Kat J, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Kirk, Sam, Chris, Micaiah, and Hoss the Dog. You all make it possible. Make the dream work. You're the team work. Anyway, I will talk to you all soon, and I hope you're doing as well as you can. 